0: Yeah, it wasn't a real gritty look when... when. Oh, there's when the not a third party in coming in. But I know I Michael was, Jordan's amazing,
1: but I'm a Detroit Pistons boy, and like <laughs> we hated Jordan. You know. Okay. But, but, Johnson, I hated Larry Bird. I hated all of them.
2: All Larry Bird, yeah. <laughs> I I love the Pistons, but I was just... But there was still something about the Bulls that were just... It was just magical. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, Jordan was amazing, but I just couldn't—I
1: nice. just couldn't like let myself love him.
2: Sure, no, it was great. But no, I never saying. loved
1: him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hey, this is the week that we're talking about politics, and so I'm glad we were able to start out with a real hot take from Dion on Michael Jordan's legacy. So, those yeah. of you that, are, that have joined in, um, we're not here to take down uh, beloved sports figures, uh, but we are going to get into some politics today. So, thanks for being here at Pathfinder Unscripted. We're joined today by Rachel. Uh, and Rachel uh, is just a member of our church, but um, but someone that's just got uh, a lot of great thoughts, and, and told me today she's got a lot of strong political opinions. So oh,
1: I'm just looking. Arm. Is is that uh, is that Gustav Klimt
2: in the yes, the yeah. kiss. Thank you. I was, at welcome. first,
1: like I was that one of your art pieces, but I'm like
2: no, that no, no, no. I'd have to no. There's not even one on the wall in here. But next time I'll have it.
0: Yeah, Rachel is an amazing visual artist. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she's done some things for our church, and yeah, there's a little plug. If you guys want want some art, reach out to Rachel. So,
2: yeah,
0: so she's like, if you can afford you. me, <laughs> I mean, you're you're like legit.
2: You're not like. You know. Well, I won't argue with you there.
0: <laughs> well, then in that case, let me give you guys something to argue about. So, yep. here's where I want to start today. That I hope will be kind of fun. Um, we had a question that you actually did answer on during worship, Dion. But it, it, uh, it sparked a memory of, of a moment that a seminary professor put me through. And so I wanted to put you guys through it as well. So the question was, in light of Romans 13, that we should you know, not rebel against the authorities. Uh, and then the, the questioner asked, you know, how can people participate in protests? You know, that, was the, that was kind of the link that that, that person made. Um, what I'd like—I I'd like—to take a different direction and then release you two on it. Uh, and this is what my professor said to me: in light of Romans 13, and that we are not to rebel against our government, was the American Revolution a sin? Go.
2: No. <laughs> yeah, Next even more question. than that. <laughs> <laughs> was the it's American interesting
1: Revolution? just to think about. Like, I mean, I'm a northerner. Uh, so was Rachel. And, um, so even, you know, even some of the cause for a just revolutionary war never translated to a cause for a just civil war, you know, like this idea of a tyrannical government, you know, it was always a, it was always a higher moral thing, but I don't know, as I get older and kind of look at history differently, I'm like, Oh, I mean, we were, there was tyranny there and we broke ranks from a King. It was not a democracy. I don't know. But then we turn around and have a civil war and we're like, no, you can't leave <laughs> on what you think is tyrannical overstep or, you know of the government of the federal government. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Of course I'm I a think- northerner,
1: so I think I think the civil war was
0: justified. I'm an American, so I think the revolutionary war was justified. Well, uh, and Ben Franklin has the supposed great quote um that he supposedly said, but that um uh, first-person rebellions are always legal. You know, our rebellion is legal. It's only, oh, yeah. only third-person rebellions that are illegal. Um, yeah. Theirs, they shouldn't have done that. But I, I think it's interesting to think about that, um, that. I think we think that there are these black-and-white mm-hmm. kind of dried applications and, and like, oh, well, this is clear. You shouldn't rebel. You shouldn't rebel. And yet, yeah, the three of us, and, and presumably most of our listeners, uh, are in a country that, that had its start, its founding in, in what is blatantly a rebellion. And, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that we start with that. And then what my professor used that for is that we got a, we have a lot of questions today. Uh, we have more questions than we have ever had in any of the seven weeks that we've been doing this. Um, but, and a lot of the questions are looking for some fairly um, blatant, cut and dried, black and white answers. And yet... Great. Right. Yes. Uh, it's no. harder
2: working yes. in the gray. No. So, we, yeah. Go, yeah. <laughs> so, let's, let's,
0: you know, hey, we could just power right through these. It could be done with this in five minutes. Right. Sure. <laughs> Um, All right. So, Rachel, you're sticking with no, though. American Revolution, not a sin.
2: Yeah, I like I remember your quote, Deanna. It's a lot harder operating in the gray. But I I I think when you look at tyrannical governments and and following God more than man, I think you have no one wanted. No one wants war, but they want justice. So, um, you know, they want freedom so is that <laughs> you're S- nodding so i'm gonna go with that answer yeah
1: <laughs> and maybe at the end of it we see that god even if it is a sinful action god can still bless and redeem a sinful mm-hmm. action
0: oh right. there we go very diplomatic all right i gotta have to spice this up a <laughs> little bit you guys yeah. have to um too kind all right so th- well, I, was,
2: I was waiting for a slightly lighter lead-in but, <laughs> but let's keep going <laughs>
0: No, no, we're questioning the Christian foundations of our entire of our entire nation. <laughs> Let's do that's that's Let's do where we're starting um, I like this question because it uses a particular word that I, I'd say like six different ones of these used uh, And so I want to I want to start here um, I've been struggling with the politics of this pandemic. I have family members who are severely at risk of COVID-19 What should we think of politicians that are trying to open churches and other areas of life too soon? almost to pander to the Christian base, especially when these decisions will inevitably lead to a second wave. And so I want to just call out one of the words that just that stuck out that is a common theme is this word pander. We uh, had about six different questions that, that used the word pander. Um, so reflections on that in general and then the, the rest of the question as well. Yeah, I mean, I've no doubt. Oh, go ahead, Rachel, you're up. You're uh,
2: I was just gonna say, you can't have politicians and politics without pandering. So. Right. <laughs> Um, uh, you, you go ahead,
1: though, first, Deanne. No, I, w- I was going to say the same thing. I'm like, I'm sure some people are looking at it for political expediency. Um, I, I think there is, beyond political expediency, politicians, especially executive politicians, are there to, ex- to follow and enforce laws, not to question laws, not to write new laws. So governors, um, you know, county executives, mayors, presidents... Um, and there, I, I think there are constitutionally protected freedoms that are currently being tested in the courts, but there's still constitution, constitutionally protected freedoms for religious expression that, so this gets beyond politics, this gets to constitutional interpretation. And so I think those who are allowing that and saying, Hey, churches need to be free to practice faith. Um, especially because Lowe's has been free in Missouri to sell me everything I need this entire pandemic um, then, then yeah, churches need to be treated fairly too. So I don't think it, I don't, I think for some people it is a political answer or, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're appealing to their base. Um, for some, some people, it's a matter of conviction, um, that this is a constitutionally protected, um, protected thing. Um, and yeah, I I could probably say more about that, but
2: I think I'm just reminded that every, area seems to be affected differently. Um, you have these different leaders. I, I, I'll, I'll give them all the benefit of the doubt that they are sincerely working for, you know, the health and safety. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is probably where I just, like Dan said, there's they go a little deeper than just the, um, just how it looks and, and I don't know, this is probably just where, um, there's how would I say it just, well, first I'll say, I know, I don't really trust, I don't, I don't need the government to look out for me kind of thing. Like, I don't really know if that's, but, but I do think as far as, um, you know, I, I do want there to be some protections against people who are more prone to be susceptible to this, but. But like you said, beyond there's there's some inc- inconsistencies. So it's really where I feel like God leads us all differently, and it goes back to sermons Like you know, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So it comes really then back to personal responsibility. And yeah. I don't know, maybe not. uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I, 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 it's, it's a gray it's a very gray and situational because between here and Michigan like I'm from Michigan like Dion and I think it's just it's it's been interesting for me watching and seeing how differently things are handled in different areas and there's so there's so many variables and I feel like things change so quickly like even in that question they say inevitable wave well I mean I know a lot of studies point to that but is it I, I feel like we we yeah. jump to some big conclusions really quick
1: well, and what I was going to say too is, um, public health is one one thing that government leaders need to consider. So, government leadership is not synonymous with public health. That's one facet of providing uh, great government leadership. There's a whole bunch of other things. So, it's a very interdisciplinary approach. So, I, I think, of course, doctors are saying, and here in St. Louis County, I mean, we're led by a medical doctor. And I think that's part of, he's been a little more stringent. I mean, that's his, that's a primary focus and passion of his, Um, but there are other concerns. And I think it's really tricky. And I, you know, early on, I, I probably was just like, why aren't they doing it this way? And I just, I realized how multi, you know, how multifaceted all these things are, that what's good for public health is terrible for the economy. And what's bad for the economy is ultimately bad for public health and safety. Um, you just kind of end up with these big circles of, yeah, this will keep immunocompromised people alive, poor people. And, and maybe I have the unique advantage of growing up very poor and still having a lot of family who live under the poverty level. Um, I, I can, I like, I can tell a lot of America's out of touch with what impoverished people deal with. And, um, this is, this is not just, we, we kind of treat it like, oh, the economic fallout of something like coronavirus is just, you know, jobs over lives. And I'm like, no, no, no. no. It's lives over lives, and it really is this man health and safety, and feeding kids, and people's mental health, and the safety of women and children who are in vulnerable positions. And man, there's some ugly stuff that happens when people can't provide for themselves. Um, so anyway,
0: uh, probably enough. Well, and I think maybe the other point to make on this too is that you know this idea of you know they're trying to open things too soon, and and to some extent this is ultimately a persuasive thing, right? There's, it's not a, um, I mean, so, th- so this is a fascinating thing I found out recently. Do you guys know how they set speed limits? Like, do you know the process behind that?
1: No. I remember back in the days when the federal guideline was that nothing could be more than 55. Yeah. Right. And then they decided to, they would do it and it would increase the death toll but mm-hmm. it, like up to a certain amount, it was kind of this balance thing, is what I understand. Of being like, well, we can restrict the, we can rescind the federal guideline because too many people are crashing. Does
2: right. It yeah. Have yeah. To do with like crash. Yeah. But what, what you can survive. Fatalities.
0: So what I always assumed was that there was some sort of a scientific thing that said a road with this many curves and and this much sphere, you know, and this many cross streets or, or pedestrian possible obstacles, like you know, that there's actual numbers. They're like, hey, you can stop at a certain distance at 35 miles per hour, or you can do a 55. No, it turns out that the the way they set speed limits is they they run, you know, they put the hoses down and they see what speeds everyone goes and they pick a number that most people will obey. Mm-hmm. That they, they find they find the number that like something like 75% of people will stay under that number and then fine, that's the speed limit. But it's purely reactionary to what they what they think they can the the driving public will let them get away with, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe one of the things I'd say to this question is I think there's a there's a, a, flawed, yeah. a flawed premise. And it's what we even saw play out with the pandemic, which is the government can absolutely say no one do anything. And people will go along with that for only so long before right. they start to lose their jobs or they start to lose things. And so I'd say maybe the thing I'd, I'd challenge on this question is that people were doing stuff no matter what. And they, you know, I mean, you could theoretically force all the grocery stores to shut down or, you know, but, but by and large, yeah the government is ultimately a persuasive force and you can only set the speed limit at, at a level that most people will choose to obey it. You can only enforce the pandemic so long as you're able to persuade your populace to, to stick with it. And so what I yeah, think mm-hmm. is fascinating is a, it's a persuasion thing. And yeah. Um, yeah and I think Panner is going to come up a lot, but yeah, I think that's, that's this one. Um, all right. So then, so we switch courses if we aren't allowed to come to church, we got two people in our congregation asking very opposite sides of this question. If we aren't allowed to come to church and only in certain numbers and by having limitations placed upon the church in order to worship, are we not experiencing a type of persecution?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would say the intent, so persecution is largely defined on intent. um, And even our Supreme court's wrestling with this right now. And, tends to be a more conservative Supreme court. Uh, but if, but again, the balancing side of this is if churches are being singled out, um, and to some degree, in some places, I feel like churches have in some places, not, um, if churches are being singled out, then it's persecution. If churches are being treated kind of like everybody else, it's not technically persecution. It's just, it may be government overreach, which I tend to, (laughs) I, I tend to be, you know, like government shouldn't get involved in a whole lot. Um, so it may be government overreach. I don't know that it's directly Christian persecution. It's certainly not that way here in Missouri. I don't feel, I don't feel any persecution. I feel our Christians and other faiths are, are being really respected in their freedom to practice. And maybe in other states, it's they're being singled out. But I think that's the difference between persecution. I think, yeah, you could say there's tyrannical behavior by the government. There's overreach by the government. But if they're doing it to everybody, then it's not actually you know Christian persecution unless somehow we're being singled
0: out. I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I feel like your husband's having persecution right now because I saw the haircut you had to give him. Um, so his, whoa, his to, yeah. Yeah. I went there.
2: Wow. Well, I was, <laughs> if that's persecution, which I, I agree with what you said, if that's persecution, I subscribe to a, it's a it's free. You can subscribe to voice of the martyrs. Um, magazine. <laughs> um if if, if honestly, you
1: really want to know about it, right?
2: We want to talk persecution. Maybe we should. Uh...
1: Yeah, and I shouldn't laugh because Voice of the Martyrs is horrifying what Christians and people are enduring for their faith. Right,
2: I'm, right.
1: I mean, I'm laughing
0: at the truth of like, oh my gosh, yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah and i think perspective is so important in all of this that it, it's easy and i feel like it's even easier now that that we're stuck in in much more limited circles than we've ever been i mean and yeah you're getting your news but even then we're most of us are getting our news from narrower narrower sources as the as the facebook and google algorithms you know shoot us what they already know that we agree with um but right to have i think something like voice of the martyrs is actually really important because it, it really broadens the perspective that this is annoying i don't like wearing masks this is this is nothing like you know, what what yeah. what is going on anywhere else.
1: Yeah. yeah, and you know, to your to your thing about like uh, government, I, I do think part of our Christian response or just our our civil response is we all as people want to push the boundaries and we do push the boundaries. So speed limits, you know, like you said, we and there's kind of this finessing. I think often government leaders try to push the boundaries to see what they can get away with, and so I think I think as informed people who are informed by the Constitution, of what our rights are. I think it's right for us to go to be a healthy check back on government to say no, 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 wait, we have rights here. I think if we stop doing that, if we don't know our rights or our freedoms, then people keep pushing, pushing, infringing. That's just natural. We would do the same, right? You know, if, if no one's enforcing laws, we're going to see what we can get away with. And if there's never a cop on the road between here and my house, then you know I'm just well, it's you know I'm just going to keep inching it up until I feel like I'm going to get busted with. Some. And that's how we that's how we run. So. I do think, as it relates to overreach, I think that's just a natural human dynamic, and we as citizens should be a healthy check and balance. There's a lot of that in our system, mm-hmm. but we should be a healthy check and balance to say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." We have rights here too, and to, to speak up in a in a respectful way.
2: Yeah, it, All right. I was just going to say too, and it reminds me of uh, in thinking about your sermon this past week, Dion, and and your sermon. Doug about fake Christians and I I've thought a lot about like the ho hum Christians. So I at least applaud the um that that this is something people care about. Like I want to be in church. Like are my you know uh rights being infringed on? And so I at least uh yeah I I like that there's that seriousness there.
0: Absolutely. All right, if separation of church and state is so prevalent in our government as a child of god should we still have separation of church and state
1: like in my what do you what do you think it means like in my life should i separate church and state
0: yeah I, I think that's probably what they're intending with that
1: well i one maybe dynamic is helpful and i didn't overly get this into this in any of the message is that we do talk about how we have a we really have dual citizenship so we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven we're citizens of an earthly kingdom we have duties and responsibilities to each you know that's give to caesar give to caesar give to god um I give to god so i think yeah there are different calls or responsibilities i have with each part of my citizenship um we shouldn't disintegrate ourselves to somehow become uh like yeah, just not integrated, not whole within ourselves. So I start to function one way as an earthly citizen, as a, a state citizen of the state, as I do um, a citizen of, of the kingdom of God. And I start to, I start to become two different people. So while I have different calls on me, I, you know, part of my call is to balance and integrate those things. So I'm still one whole person. I'm I'm not sure I even understand fully the question, but
0: yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm guessing. I think you have answered it well, and and I'm guessing it's it's this whole. Um, and, and you see this, I'd say, mostly amongst Christian politicians, where where they they try to make this division, where they say, "Well, hey, I'm a Christian, but I but I would never, but I, I don't practice politics as a Christian. I practice politics as a leader of all faiths, right?" Yeah. Like, yeah. But, but again, that that's a public figure. But I, I think, um, you know, I think Christians worry about, you know, does it should it inform or should it just be this you know like like, like one thing i'll I'll say maybe i'll speak to this because i I think i I resonate with this a little bit i don't believe for example that we should try to enforce christian morality via via government i I, I just think that's a that's a troublesome road to go down uh and so i think in a a simplistic way you can reduce that to um well you don't you don't vote christian morality you keep your faith separate from your politics Mm. um and for me I don't see it that way, but I I think it could be. And I think maybe that's what this person's asking, asking about for me. I I think there's just a tension.
1: I I mean, I actually support what you just said. I don't believe in legislating morality. And I do that both because of a civil concern of, Hey, we're, yeah, we have some Christian foundations, but we're founded on religious freedom. Like I I don't want anyone legislating their morality on me. I, I want to be practice free to practice my faith according to the tenets of my faith, not according to some laws of the land. But I also think from a faith standpoint, what really drives me on that question is law, and we know this, the law does not change people. So as a Christian, the laws are used to restrain behavior. It doesn't change anyone's hearts. So while we might legislate morality, all we're doing is controlling. And sometimes, as Paul says, we're increasing the trespass by legislating these things. We're making people into lawbreakers where, where the gospel is what actually transforms a heart. That makes me want to do the things that God is asking me to do, rather than being forced by the by the law to do that. So, I mean, my my faith even informs that viewpoint for me. That that hey, people don't change because of the law. I'm changed by the gospel of Jesus, and if I want people to live a a moral Christian life, then I'm going to ask them to do that in the same way that it works for me. I don't follow the laws of you know the scriptures because. God says so, I do because my heart's been changed by Jesus and he's making his, making my heart or making his heart home in my heart, you know, you know that kind of thing. So I, so I think even to that point, like my faith should inform every part of my politics, but it's a little trickier than, well, because then I believe it's wrong to do this or this or that, or we, everyone should do this, then I think we should legislate that. No, if my faith is really informing it, then that means Really, really getting in deep about how does my faith, how does my faith, uh, you know, vitalize, move me. What does the scripture say about what's true? How people change, how, how we get to be a moral and more moral and just society. We know that laws don't work very well. Didn't work very well for Israel. They ended up either hypocrites or lawbreakers. And Jesus comes in and goes, Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's change your hearts.
0: Well, I think that's a good segue to this next one. And again, it's asked in a pretty loaded way, but I figure the three of us can, can still engage with it pretty well. So the, the question is, why are so many Christians passionate about abortion, but less interested in the lives that are already being lived? And I'm assuming by that, that they're kind of referencing the, the there was that one nun that said, you know, pro-life movement is really pro-birth because once, once you're born, the, you know, the pro-life movement stops caring about your welfare, your health, et cetera, et cetera. So I assume that's what, what they're referencing in that question.
2: I'll say, I think it's I I can speak for myself and just, you know, our, our, church body, we, that's one thing we're aware of. I don't know if for so long we've really understood or come from a place of understanding of even that these other, um, these other things are, are real. I think we've been very sheltered from that. Um, I think Deanne, you mentioned it in your sermon, just like you read the Bible and, Oh, there's also some other stuff in there that I see maybe these people on the other side of the political spectrum are really championing. Um, and it's, it's in the Bible too. And, and for whatever reason, again, I, I can only point to just an awareness that's maybe been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think we're finding out, I, I think it's getting better, but I think it's, you know, just, that's what we're living in right now is, is kind of, Looking at some of these other issues that have, for yeah, whatever reason, gone untouched.
1: Yeah, I, you know when I think you're dealing with a huge issue. So when a woman becomes pregnant, in a way that she either doesn't feel like she can uh, give birth to the child, raise the child, sustain the child's life, like when you when you get to that fundamental issue that creates a need there's probably a small percent of the population that just, you know, wants to see abortion as just kind of easy form of birth control. I can do whatever I want. I think, you know, back when we were first tackling the abortion issue as a country, um, I think a lot of it was, man, there was a hard, there was a hard place people were in and they were seeing abortion as a solution for this hard place. And it's a very multifaceted issue. I think it's right for us as Christians to say, we have, we have to kind of start in the place where we think we can, you know, that's the most grievous, that we can make a difference. We have to, you know, decrease abortion. We have to help women understand what's going on inside of them. We have to change this myth that it's just a lump of tissue and that there's no emotional connection for the, for the mother or for the, there's no feeling for the child. Like we have to break down these myths. Like we have to start somewhere. I think, I think the problem with the pro-life movement is that it, it started there and it stayed there. Um, and so I don't necessarily blame the pro-life movement for starting with the issue of abortion, but really at some point we, we needed to move beyond to say, but if abortion clinics are largely in certain communities, if there's, if there's certain kinds of people living under certain circumstances, um, certain kind of, you know, man, these demographic cases that tend to happen a lot, what can we do to reduce the desire for this end in people? What other systemic things can we help alleviate? And, um, and, and we stopped doing that. And so I can, I can attest, I have a, you know, I have a, I grew up very pro-life. I still am very, you know, I talk to my daughters about this. I'm just like, I, I, I think the toll of abortion on a woman is greater than still most people want to, want to admit. And, you know, let's not even talk about the toll on a child, but on a woman, I just think we need to be honest about that. Um, and I think there's some great things that are happening in some states really to try to help women understand without taking away their freedom to help them understand this, this, this is what this is. And I think it's a great first step, but I also, um, I also observed in my experience, um, and, and some of this is really close to home. I have a, I talked about this my nephew, Cullen, he's 22 now, um, maybe 23, 22. And he's, he was born severely disabled. Um, and we, my sister knew from the time he was in the womb, he had had a stroke, he might not survive. He might ex- have a lot of disability, um, being a very like pro-life kind of whatever this child's life is in God's hands. I'm going to see this through. And she has. And, um, and yet, uh, this is, this is the tragic, I think the real tragic part of the story is that she has had to fight every day and she's a tenacious woman, thank God, but she has had to fight insurance companies. She's had to fight the state for just basic care for him um, and he, you know, he, she could abandon him and let him be a ward of the state and the state would have to deal with that. But because she can, she continues to care for him um, as her own son, she's just had to battle and do some crazy things to be able to protect his life. with every, everything from insurance companies saying that since it's happened in, your, in utero, that his condition is a pre-existing condition and they wouldn't cover certain things. And you're like, <laughs> You know so there's some insanity in the system and and frankly, you know it's been very wounding to my my sister and my family to see the pro-life community never coming to the aid of you know the pro-life community would say, oh gosh, a, a child with disability, well, how could you stand to abort them? Don't their lives matter?" And as a Christian, I would say, yes, absolutely, but we stopped moving forward in the discussion to say, well does it does the life still matter when he's one year old and he doesn't have insurance coverage and this family can't afford the medical tre- there's no way you can afford these medical treatments and insurance company is saying it's pre-existing. Like, wh- where are you church? And so I think, I think, um, and again, I, I, I just think we got stuck. Um, I think we got stuck with some other issues beyond that, you know, in, in um, poor areas where a mother's going, how, how do I raise this kid? I don't have any support. I can't make enough money to support this child. Who's going to care for my child while I'm working I don't know if they'll have safety while I'm, you know, like we haven't addressed those support structure issues as a church. And I mean, there are some pregnancy counseling centers actually who do this well, but they are, man, I I don't think it's enough. I think there are some who really, I know of some who really walk with women and they're like, if you make this decision for life, we are here with you. We are going to be for life. And I know some women who work at those centers who take it very seriously. It's a calling on their life and they, and they do what I think the church should do. Anyway, long-winded answer but I, but I think this does apply to other issues, even like what we're experiencing right now with, with you know, race, uh, racial tensions. We, we have to begin somewhere. And I think sometimes we get paralyzed by like, where's the right place to begin? I think sometimes you just got to jump in. But I think the mistake is to stay there. You got to keep moving um, and address the broader pictures. If you just try to pick out a slice of it, um, it just know, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we naturally as human beings gravitate to a simple answer. We want there to be simple answers to things. And so like you said, you jump in and then what you discover, if you're really being sincere is that it's far messier, far more complex than you want to admit. And so it's, it's harder to, it's easy to say, ah, just a Christian should just be pro-life and anti-abortion. It's harder to say, oh, wow, to, to really live that out in a persuasive, truly caring for people way. Like that's, that's just so much more messy, so much more complex and kind of take so much more investment of resources than we ever fathomed
1: right but if the church and i mean i agree with you and i think that's it but if the church got serious about supporting life in all those other ways the demand for the abortion abortion would go mm. down we wouldn't have to fight this so hard legislatively we would decrease the demand because all the people there'd be a few people who would still make the decision they'd be uninformed or they'd be heartless a very small percentage but people would find suddenly the support that's driving a, a really bad decision, in my opinion. That's a bad decision to have an abortion. But suddenly that would become, like, they wouldn't have to make that decision anymore. But, but, of course, it's resource intensive. It's tricky. It's messy. And we as a church have not wanted to go there. And I don't know that I can solve that problem, and I haven't wanted to go there. But I'm saying there's a way, if we care about life, to do this and,
0: again, not even have to legislate it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks. Rachel, any, any parting thoughts before no, I go to the next question? that
2: was wonderful. Let's keep going.
0: All right. Well, so, on, so I think this, this it's actually there. It's all flowing really nicely. So the next question is, how do I know the balance of standing up for what I believe in on social media opposed to just staying out of the mess? Pray. <laughs> uh, elaborate on that, Rachel.
2: Well, I, I think many... I know I I've been there. I probably still am there in some cases. And I think Deanne yeah, in the question and answer, you kind of, you hit on this too about like, what am I using my voice for? I think social media, it's great because you can share, but it's also this place where things can get lost or it, it almost, you know, things can get easily diminished and in, in importance. I mean, you know, you say something on social media, how important is it? Um, I, I've, I feel like, and I told Doug this ahead of time, like I used to be really, I think, involved with politics or, you know, my, my eight wing was really strong. And then over time, I I think like Dion said, it, it's, it's really looking at what, what is my biggest message? What do I really want to preach? Um, especially when we live in a social media instant world where we have this instant reaction and maybe we want to fire something off, but I think it's maybe just to stop and pray for discernment about where is God really calling me? Is this really, you know, a a chance to be a light in a dark place or, or is this something where I should just maybe trust that God is in control? And especially during, you know, when we're putting it in the realm of politics, Uh, I, I think for myself, I've learned over the years, it's, it's just a big distraction. I think a lot of, I think it, it's not to say that people aren't called to it, but that's why you pray and, and look for like, God, where do you want me to speak? And I know for myself, it's just been something where it's like, this is a waste of my time. Frankly, I need to be pouring myself into the Bible and God's word and and living it out instead of being behind my phone and spouting off something that honestly, tomorrow is going to be forgotten. So yep. uh-huh.
0: Wow, yeah, great answer, Rachel. Um, you reminded me of something a, a homiletics prof said. You, so, you know, we were young, impassioned, young preachers, right? And saying, all right, we want to preach sermons that change the world, that, that rock hard-hearted people, that, you know, right the wrongs. And, uh, and he just made the point that um, the only thing a sermon can do is change the hearts of someone who's already soft-hearted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and if you, you've got a hard-hearted person, a sermon won't actually do anything. And, and so then the question was, well, then what do you do about hard-hearted people? And this, this very wise prof said, you, you invite them over for barbecue. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, just what you're saying. It, there, there's no right thing you can say. There's no perfect thing. It's going to be forgotten tomorrow anyway. But if you can forge connection, if you can, if you can build bonds of relationship and show love and care, that's what's actually going to change hard-hearted people. So I think maybe what I'd say on the social media litmus is if you're trying to persuade a hard-hearted person, if you're trying to rant against the, the, this perceived person on the other side, recognize that it's, it's just not the tool. It's not the right tool for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do want to bring uh, enlightenment or clarity to people that you're already assuming are, are reasonable and and compassionate folks, and you think you've got something that you can say that will help them, you know, and I've seen a lot of that in light of the recent protests with the George Floyd thing, is I've seen a lot of people I'm really proud to be in those f- news feeds that are saying, Hey guys, if you, if, if this is important, don't rant and rave, don't, but, but here are organizations you can, you can support. Here are letters, that you, you know, here's templates for letters you can write. And it's, um, and, and those are, you know, they're, they're not demonizing anyone. They're not assuming that anyone is hate filled. They're not, they're not assuming other people are idiots, um, but they are encouraging and saying, Hey, here's, here's things you can do that would actually make a difference beyond just blasting something with your thumbs on your phone. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's become my litmus test. Yeah. And I would hope on the
1: standing up for people that we'd all be willing to stand up for people, but I, let's, I mean, before I'd say more important than the social media piece is if you see, if you see uh, a person of color being mistreated or just being treated unkindly in a store, like stand up for them, you know, like talk to the clerk, They're like, Hey, don't talk to him that way. You know, like if you see someone mistreating a, a person with disabilities like, I hope you would stand up for them in those moments. I, you know, we could go on, right? But I, I think we've become a culture where standing up for someone means shouting to all my friends who probably agree with me um, this viewpoint, which feels a little bit more like a rally. And I, I don't, you know, there's a place for rallies and um, uh, political rallies, but um, I, 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 don't know that, I don't know that we can technically call that standing up for people. Um, and so I, again, I, I just would hope in our living that if we see injustice and there's sometimes I have, I, with women, you know, I've just been ever since the me Too thing and I have yeah, two sisters, no brothers. I got a wife, two daughters, I, you know, I got two sisters in law. I mean, I've got all these women in my life and I'm just like, so what am I doing to help the cause of women? And, um, and there've been some times in meetings with different groups of people where like, I've just watched, I've watched the interruption thing happen consistently. As soon as the woman starts talking, people start a side conversation. I'm like, what the heck is that? And there are moments where I have stood up and there are lots of moments I haven't. And I realized like, gosh, until I can be the guy who lovingly, respectfully goes, Hey, I've just noticed that every time she starts talking, you guys have a conversation. Is there something up with that? Until I can do that, then man, I, I probably don't have much business saying anything on social media. And I think, I don't want to be overly harsh but i think social media becomes a coward's way to stand up and i think there are there are ways that we can stand up for people um, to come to the aid of people who are in a vulnerable position when we have maybe more power that are much more meaningful in real life that we do not exercise and i, I would just love for people to put more attention there
0: i love that um all right let's let's close that last question and then we'll we'll be done um Uh, And this question is also quite loaded, so we might have to break down which piece of it we feel like engaging with. Um, Why does God let... So already, when a question starts out (laughs) with, why does God let... Okay. uh, Why does God let there be such division politically among faiths and churches and family members?
1: The Bible says where division comes from, and it's not from God. That God tolerates it. Yeah, God tolerates a lot of... (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's the once you ask the why does God let?" question I mean you immediately are are ultimately going to come back to the Garden of Eden and Why does God let anything bad happen? Why does God let death in the world? Why does God let people sin and lie and and stab each other? Um, So right. So the answer is in his ineffable wisdom. He made human beings and he allowed them to fall and Mm -hmm. That's where we are
1: It's also my conviction though that the 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 more you are, the deeper your connection to Jesus in a, you know, John 15 kind of way. Um, the, the more you're abiding connected to Jesus, the more you grow a distaste for division, um, of any kind. And I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm definitely, I, I I experienced something different in me than a decade ago, um, where division was kind of exciting and I was picking sides and, there's just there's something about the movement of God working, so maybe God you know lets it on the macro stage when the Spirit of God is is working here here sorry you can't see my hands here and me um, when the Spirit of God's working there I, it I, there is like through the Holy Spirit an intolerance that starts to build in you for for division and divisiveness and quarrelsome behavior and you just start to lose your taste for it um, and so you know. Well, God may let it out there. When God's working in you, um, it's hard to let those things survive.
2: Yeah. I, I would come back with the question, why do we let ourselves, you know, why does, it's not why does God allow it? Why, why do we, why do we even go there? Um, like you said, when we're so connected to Jesus, when you see it happen, it's, it just makes you sad. You know, like one of you had a recent sermon, like, oh, if they only the only new is I think Doug it was your, you know, like the compassion for, you know, when you, when you see people get caught up in this, um, instead, we know that God is God of love and he's, you know, invited us to be like-minded and live in harmony with your, you know, brothers and sisters. And so it, it's almost something, like I said, I, it, it can become a such a sad distraction because I think people's hearts are really in the right place, but it, it they, they tie it into looking at human leaders and human policies instead of going back to God and, and really putting all their faith and trust in him. And, because I just know once you do that, it's, that's the thing, like you said, Dean, that it's, he's the one that changes lives. Like the, you know, I believe my confirmation verse is Romans one sixteen. you know, the, you know, the gospel is the power of the God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If we all really believe that, this wouldn't be an issue <laughs> like we would just be talking about the gospel. Cause that is the thing that, that makes all the difference And
1: Wow. Yeah. And you know, that sort of came up this weekend, but not so much, but Rachel you're spot on that, like this power thing that I think the reason politics is so attractive to Christians is we're looking for some sort of power to change people's behavior, to change the world, to influence people. And even to godly ends, we're looking for mm-hmm. leverage or power to bring more godliness into the world when Romans tells us where that power is, but it just seems like, I understand why it's such an otherworldly power. No other, no other group of people depend on that kind of power. They all depend on, so we just get swept into political power, legislative power, you know, the power of the masses, whatever those other powers are, they just seem so attractive to us because the power of the gospel seems so weak and small, but that's, Mm -hmm. That is the all-powerful thing, and if we took that more seriously, that that's where that's where our power is. That's where true power is. It is in the gospel. We'd spend more time preaching the gospel, letting people's hearts be changed by Jesus, and letting the fruit of the spirit just kind of manifest in their life, rather than trying to do all this other end-run stuff. But I, I get it because I, I, fall, I fall into, <laughs> you know, I fall into the other things too, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, um, and I think the thing that that sticks out to me and all that too is that when you have power, it's that political power very naturally creates an us and them mentality, whereas the power of the gospel and Rachel, thanks for quoting Romans one sixteen, is for all people. They, that there's no yeah. division in the gospel; it wants everyone to be saved. Whereas political power, I think, does just kind of naturally fall into this. Well, no, no, no there, there's the people that are threatening us, and then the people that that are that are with us, and um, and it and it's by its nature doesn't want everyone to be saved because that would that would mean there's no bad guys. That would mean there's no one to leverage power. If you have power, there has to be someone to leverage it against. Mm-hmm. Is what I think I'm trying to say, and, and, uh, and so then you, you always need to perpetually create a bad guy to create another. Whereas the power of the gospel is no, every, everyone is someone that Christ redeemed and, and wants to, wants to survive.
1: Yeah. And it, it was Steve Howard who helped me see who is our former senior. He's our pastor emeritus here. And just an incredible mentor for me. He's the one who helped me see how often in the scriptures, Paul, uh, primarily, but, um, talks about how quarrelsome divisive people are like not following the spirit of God. That's someone who's contentious or quarrelsome. That's not a spiritual fruit. He was also the one who helped me see, you know, as pastors, we get all kinds of feedback about all kinds of things. And you're always weighing, you're like, well, these are, these are people who have been a part of the church for a long time and they're faithful attenders. And, and he just gave me the simple litmus test. And the longer I've lived with it, I don't think it's overly simple He would just say, you know, I would really test their, not just their life, but their feedback. Was it love? Was it filled with joy? Did it have peace? Was it patient? Was it kind? Was it gentle? Was it faithful? Was it filled with self-control? Those are the fruits of the Spirit, and those things will evidence things that are coming from God. You know, if it's, if it's devoid of all those things, they may be an authentic Christian, but this is not a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led response, because where the Spirit is leading, it will be manifested by these fruits, and, um, and it was just kind of a good litmus test for me when I would just get twisted up, like, is this person being mean? Or are, is this something I need to listen to, to just kind of look at the fruit that surrounded the thing. And so back to the division question. Um, yeah, I mean, we believe that in the when the power of the gospel is at work in our lives is spirits transforming us imperfectly. We're on this journey of, you know, until Jesus comes back, we're on this journey of, of growth, and it's forward and back and circles and ups and downs. And, but there should be there should be a manifestation of these things that are clearly defined as uh, fruits of the spirit and divisiveness is not one of them. It actually violates several of them. And yeah, I can still be a Christian and be divisive, but um, the longer the spirit abides in my life, the more that's just like, when I do it, I feel, feel yucky. I'm just like, why, why did I do, you know, mm-hmm. like gossip or, I mean, man, I used to love to gossip. It feels good to gossip and then just increasingly just like, <laughs> it doesn't make me feel good. There's just, and it's not, it's just, I think it's the spirit of God just going like, I've lost an appetite for some of that stuff. And I hope that keeps continuing in my life for all the stuff I want to get rid of.
0: Cause I've got plenty of things that I still need to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, I've been listening to a song, uh, it's called no hard feelings by the Avett brothers. And I've actually been listening to it on repeat for the last couple of weeks, um, which I don't do very often, but every so often I'll have one of these like Vendors, where right? I just listen to one song, and Dion. It's ultimately what it's about. They're they're two Christian brothers, and but they're not. They don't play primarily Christian music, but just the song is ultimately about this. At the end of it, when we're when we're meeting our Savior, when we're when we're getting there, can we have no hard feelings? Can we can we live a life mm-hmm. of love? Leave behind the anger, the jealousy, the hatred, the resentment, and that that what heaven is actually marked by is this no hard feelings. That there's that there's no enemies. There's no one we're trying to hold anything against. And it's just a really, if anyone doesn't know the song, then check it out. No hard feelings. It's just very evocative very beautiful picture of what it actually could look like to to lay down that divisiveness and that and that anger um all right it's uh, past time uh rachel thank you for being here with us You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, uh, Rachel. for all those of you that are joining us uh, from wherever you are uh, i hope that you enjoyed this uh we actually got through a lot of questions i'm i'm proud of us uh and uh, and i hope for you as always that it sparks conversation for you and your circle just because we're distant and isolated doesn't mean we stop talking and having conversations with each other. So I hope that you're having conversations at home. I hope that some of what we've shared here gives you food for thought in those conversations. And I hope that all of you joining us are having a a great week. And uh, we'll see you next week as we start a new series, Making Rainbows. It's going to be going to be a good one. I'm excited for that. So thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Dion. Thanks y'all for being here. Bye. Bye.